Dear Father, thank you for bringing me through the the travels I had in Israel and bringing me back safely uh, with my wife and with those who joined me in Israel, Father, uh, for the blessing it was to be there and to learn as we walked around and taught and, and enjoyed that place, Father. But now being back, Father, in the place you've assigned me, I thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is to stand here once more and preach. Not words that come from my wisdom, not insight, Father, that is borrowed from my own understanding, Father, but entirely from you as you've provided it to me. And, Lord, I pray that as I share it with those you've assembled, it would be true to your purpose, it would be according to your will, it would accurately reflect the scripture that you have assigned to us tonight, and more than anything, Father, it would bring you glory, serve purposes that are heavenly and eternal in the hearts of those who listen tonight, Father. Grow us as only you can by your word, molding us, Father, into the nature and to the character of your Son by the lessons that you taught through him in these words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, tonight, chapter 5, we begin one of the best-known sermons that Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And last time I taught with you at the end of chapter 4, I was explaining that, that Matthew's narrative, his account, focuses on five areas of Jesus' ministry. As we go through the whole gospel, we'll see these. He explains Jesus' authority as a teacher, his authority over the human body, his authority over the demonic realm, his authority over the Sabbath and the rest of the Jewish law, and his authority over the creation itself. Those are the five areas that we'll see Matthew revisiting over and over. And collectively, those demonstrations of Jesus' power and authority all prove his claim to be divine, that he is in fact the one promised, the Messiah. But of all those areas, there was one that was more important than the rest, and it's the one we mentioned last time, that the authority in his teaching is the preeminent authority that Christ brought when he came. As impressive as all the other stuff was, absent the teaching, it would have been a meaningless sideshow. And so Matthew, more than perhaps the other gospel writers, really emphasizes Jesus' teaching in his gospel. He records altogether five long, detailed sermons in his gospel, or sometimes we call them discourses. And those sermons reveal Jesus' unparalleled understanding of spiritual truth, and each one works in its own way to correct false teachings that were embedded in the culture of Israel in that day. False teachings, false understandings of God and of the kingdom and of righteousness and so on. But perhaps of all five, the one that's most famous, if you can say that, or the one that's best known, is the Sermon on the Mount, the one we start tonight in chapter 5. We call this the Sermon on the Mount because of where Jesus stood when he presented this to his disciples. It was more than likely somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a relatively small body of water. I spent a week up there not long ago, and it rounded our hills that are pretty steep coming up off the water. They're not mountains, but they're relative to the, the water below. They look high. You stand on the top of one, it feels like you're up pretty high. He was likely on one of these sloping hillsides when he taught, on a mount, in other words, perhaps near Bethsaida or near the Arbel or somewhere of that sort. He's been moving around the Galilee. He's been healing, as we heard last time. Naturally, that attracted a very sizable crowd of people who wanted to be healed. As he attracted the crowd, he taught. And he was teaching to them the details of what he was proclaiming. He was saying the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and now he's prepared to explain what he means by the term kingdom or the kingdom of God. This is the first such extended teaching of Christ on that topic. 
And the sermon is long. It runs three chapters in Matthew's Gospel, all the way through the end of seven. But of all the things it's known for, I think it's best known for how it begins, with a section that we commonly call the Beatitudes. And as we finish the Beatitudes, we're going to take a moment to consider some background on them before we look at them individually. So back to chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Before we consider what he's saying to the crowd, there are two major points of background that you have to appreciate. First, you need to understand the religious culture of Israel in Jesus' day into which these words were spoken. Because by the time Jesus appeared in the Galilee, Israel's religious life had been warped by centuries of bad teaching. For at least four centuries, going back to the end of the Old Testament period, to the time of Malachi, the nation of Israel had been led by and taught by men who traced their origins back to Ezra. These men, though they came out of what Ezra began, they distorted what Ezra established and they corrupted the people as a result. When the people of Israel returned from their exile in Babylon, they were determined, when they came back, they were determined never to repeat the mistakes that had put them there in the first place. And among their leaders was a teacher by the name of Ezra. We have a book in the Old Testament by that name, as you probably know. And Ezra, when he came back with the exiles from Babylon, and they re-entered the land, he began to instruct the people of Israel concerning the law of God, something they had largely forgotten in the days before they were sent out of the land. Now, Ezra was a man who knew God, who loved God, who loved God's word. He taught it well. He wanted the people to understand it so that they would follow it. And he had such a desire to instill obedience into the hearts of the people of Israel that he established within the, the culture of Israel the idea of teaching teachers who would always be prepared to explain the words of God to those in Israel so that they might follow the law properly. And under his leadership, the people of Israel recommitted themselves to knowing and following the commandments of God, at least for a time. He also began this school, I mentioned, of training religious leaders. The name that we eventually gave to these trainees of Ezra's teaching were scribes, because that's what Ezra was. He was a scribe, someone who wrote and maintained the word of God in its written form. But that became a term that began to mean more than just those who wrote it down. It began to also refer to those who taught it to others, scribes. For a time, this worked really well. But after Ezra died and those that he trained had died, a new generation within Israel rose up. Men who took Ezra's program in a new direction, in a very unhelpful direction. They were not just content to teach what God's word said. They began to expand what was considered authority in that day, the set of rules that people in that day were expected to follow. That is to say that for every 
thou shalt not, that was found in Scripture, this new generation of scribes added ten more thou shalt nots of their own making. Now they claimed that these additional rules were there to ensure that Israel would be obedient to the law of God by setting up new rules that made breaking the original rule a lot harder. They called them fences, a barrier to doing the wrong thing by creating other rules that kept you even farther away from that wrong thing. Now you can see where this goes, right? Because that's a never-ending kind of pursuit. And this new rabbinical movement resulted in two very serious problems for the people of Israel. First, the scribes' manual of man-made rules, eventually, we come to know that as the Mishnah, this book of man-made rules, it grew over the centuries in size and in importance. Each new generation of scribes and religious leaders would seek to invent new rules or reinterpret the old rules, eventually so that all these rules that they established outside of Scripture were so all-encompassing, they rivaled Scripture itself. In fact, the scribes and the rabbis ultimately came to declare that their rules were Scripture. How did they do that? Well, they claimed that the Mishnah was an oral law, that God originally gave this oral law to Moses, and Moses never wrote it down. And then that additional law was preserved over time in an oral tradition until now the scribes finally put it in writing. Now we have it in a book. Now once that myth took hold in the minds of the people, well, the Mishnah became indistinguishable from Scripture in the minds of Jewish people. They, they obeyed it like they obeyed the book of God. It was all the same to them. Now naturally, as the keepers of the Mishnah, the Pharisees became self-appointed models of piety within Israel. Because think about it, they were the ones who maintained this list. They were the ones who told you what you had to do. So they portrayed themselves as the gold standard for righteousness among the people. Such that when a Jewish man or a Jewish woman might wonder in their mind, well, what pleases God? What do I need to do to be God-pleasing? They only needed to look at a Pharisee to know what the answer was. That was the way the culture had moved. It was like the fox guarding the hen house, because these guys would always make sure the rules favored them in some sense. So now, after centuries of living under Pharisaical Judaism, as I've described it, Israel had lost a true sense of who God was, what he expected, and most importantly, what his word actually said. Now, I grew up Catholic, and I can tell you there's some very interesting parallels between what I just described and what it's like to live as a Catholic, speaking as one who knows from firsthand experience. I mean, there might have been a Bible in my house. I'm not sure. If it was in the house, it was the least open book we had. But the catechism of Catholicism, well, that you had to follow. That's what ruled your day. That was what defined Catholic life, not the Bible. So in Jesus' day, Israel's society was regulated almost exclusively by what the Mishnah asked of Israel. So Sabbath-keeping, feasts, rituals, temple service, virtually anything that had to do with religious life in Israel, all of that was practiced according to these man-made rules, and those customs would bear a resemblance to God's word only by happenstance, only if they happened to intersect in some convenient way. And in some cases, the rabbi's teaching actually contradicted Scripture. But never mind, the rabbi teaching was orthodoxy. The Mishnah and later works that came along after Jesus' day, we call those the Talmud, or there's some other similar works, all of that literature, rabbinical literature, has defined Israel from that time forward. What's so ironic about that 
is that it all came out of the original work of Ezra. And yet Ezra's goal was to preserve the word of God among Israel. And now his system had become a means of obscuring it. Not because of what he did, obviously, but because of those who followed after him. The result being that today, in Israel, just as much as it was in Jesus' day, a typical Jew is largely ignorant of what's in the Bible. And it's very easy to see that when you're there, by the way. If you get into a conversation with a Jewish person about what's in the Bible, if they entertain that conversation at all, even if you just stay in the Old Testament, it's amazing how ignorant they are, how little they know about the Bible, as religious as they all appear to be. In place of that truth, they bear up under the burden of literally thousands of meaningless man-made rules that have been handed down to them over centuries of tradition. And the consequence of all that is that the Jewish people have largely forgotten that God has given them a promise of forgiveness and mercy in the Messiah. That's completely missing from the Jewish mindset. That leads us to the second major point of, of background. The crowd. The crowd that's listening to Jesus at this point. Remember I said these are men and women who have come principally because they've heard Jesus is healing every kind of illness. Jesus attracts literally thousands of sick paralyzed, demon-possessed outcasts. I mean, this is not exactly your A-list of religious elite. You know what I mean? These are the people that no one would have had any interest in within that culture. On the contrary, these were the people at the bottom of the cultural pecking order. And the Pharisees even taught that those who suffered from these kind of maladies, these kind of incurable disabilities and the like, were experiencing God's judgment because of either their sin or the sin of their parents, which is even more bizarre when you think about it. And that false charge just gave Jewish society this license to ignore them, to marginalize them, to forget about them, because they're just getting what they deserve. Anytime those people probably thought about God or thought about the kingdom or thought about heaven, what were they probably thinking? I'm assuming that they looked at themselves and they looked at the Pharisees and the difference between them, and they just thought, I've got no prospect of this. I have no hope. They're being judged by God, I'm told. I'm I'm a pariah because of my sin. The rabbis say I have no chance. How could they ever rise above their their, their poverty and shame and their, their illnesses to think that they could equal the scrupulous Pharisees and be worthy of going to heaven? You see the hopelessness of that kind of societal view. If the Pharisees were God's golden standard for righteousness, then anyone like those collected around Jesus had no chance. So, Pharisaical Judaism yielded two seriously negative consequences for Israel. It replaced God's word with onerous man-made rules that left Israel ignorant of God's true desires. And secondly, it perpetuated a false standard for righteousness by elevating these corrupt, hypocritical religious leaders and saying they are God's representatives for what you should seek. And the combination of false teaching and false teachers... It leaves the culture with an upside-down view of God and of righteousness. And it robs people of their hope for salvation. Because who can measure up against those kinds of paragons of of godliness or so-called paragons? Anyone who's ever been trapped in a works-based religion, like Catholicism is, frankly, or Mormonism, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or a lot of others of of these cult-like pseudo-Christian faiths that replace grace with works. If you've ever been trapped in one of those, or you know someone who's been trapped in them, you can identify with the situation that Jesus faced in first century Israel. In Matthew chapter 5, 
Jesus sits down near the Galilee and he delivers this message, this sermon, to overturn that upside down thinking. He wants to replace the man-made nonsense with the long-lost biblical truth. And that's why so much of what you hear in this sermon sounds kind of backwards. It's Jesus repeatedly denying the authority of the Pharisees and their oral law so that he can reassert the authority of God's word in place of it. He's exposing the Pharisees' wrong view of righteousness so he can exhort the people to look elsewhere for that truth and not to look to them anymore. And in the process, he establishes himself as the one true authority on these matters of heaven, of the kingdom, of righteousness, of God himself. And so as he begins his sermon, he issues a series of statements, which we often call the Beatitudes. There's nine of them. Each of them begins with this word, makarios. That word is is translated in my English version, blessed. It literally means happy, so you could see that. I'm not sure if any Bible does that, but it could mean happy. We get the term beatitude from the Latin translation of that same Greek word. That's where, if you wonder where the beatitude comes from, it just, that's a Latin word. But anyway, what Jesus is saying is, blessed or spiritually happy, or we could say spiritually rewarded, are those who, and then he has nine statements. Now notice these as a group for a moment. I want to look at these as a group just for a moment, because they share so much in common. First, notice that the blessing or the reward that Jesus is talking about here in each case is not something vague. It's something super specific. I want you to notice he defines what he means by blessing, both at the beginning and then again near the end of the nine statements. In verse 3 and in verse 10, he defines what he means when he says blessed. It means entering the kingdom of God. Or today we would say being saved. Or maybe you would say going to heaven. That's what he means. When he says blessed, he means being saved, being in heaven. Not some lesser form, not some trivial, everyday kind of blessing of happiness or contentment. That's not what he's talking about here. He didn't open his very first sermon on earth talking about how you can have your best life now. He opens up talking about what matters most. Are you going to heaven? Are you in the kingdom? That's the first thing you need to notice. Second thing you need to notice. These qualities he mentions, these nine qualities or conditions, they're all spiritual in nature. They're not physical things. And it's easy to see that in the case of a few, like purity or gentleness. We know that those refer to the spiritual condition of someone's heart. But even in the case of the others, when he mentions being poor or hungering, you notice he qualifies what he means so that we understand that he's talking spiritually. In verse 3, he says, poor in spirit. And in verse 6, he describes hungering for righteousness. So in all cases, we're not talking about physical conditions We're describing spiritual conditions. So if somebody thinks that going into poverty makes them blessed, they miss the point. And they're not going to have very much in this life, unnecessarily, I guess. Thirdly, I want you to notice the reward. The reward for each condition does not come now. It comes in the kingdom. Notice again in verse 3, Jesus says, Those who are poor in the Spirit will receive the kingdom. Likewise, he says, Those who mourn today will rejoice. Where? In the kingdom is the implication. Those who are meek today will be rewarded in the kingdom. Those who desire to see righteousness and justice reigning will be satisfied in their longings when they get to the kingdom. And those who pursue purity will know the purity of God when they see him face to face in the kingdom and so on. You can clearly see how Jesus is working to contradict the false teaching that was prevalent in his day. The same false teaching that we still have today. 
That is, the Pharisees had set their minds on receiving the praises of men and the riches of this earth. They pointed to their wealth. They pointed to their prestige as proof that God was happy with them. And then they turned around to everybody else and they said, you should be more like us. That's false teaching. It's false then. It's false now. Today we have a name for it. We call it prosperity teaching. It's this idea that we want our reward now. But God's priority is not giving us our best life now. It's granting us joy in the kingdom and the age to come. That's what God's all about. That's what we need to be about. And then finally, the last general observation. Notice in these nine statements, Jesus is describing the heart. And listen to me here, because this is the key to understanding these. He is describing the heart of the one who has received the kingdom. He is not giving you a recipe for how to receive the kingdom. If Jesus had intended the Beatitudes to be a roadmap for how you obtain the kingdom, then that would mean he's teaching a gospel of works. In fact, many false teachers and many false churches teach these that very way, that is, that you have to do these things in order to earn your entrance into heaven. But that view just repeats the error of the Pharisees. If that were true, you would just be substituting these rules for the Mishnah. And it's all the same in the end, friends, because in reality, rule-keeping never brought anyone into heaven. I don't care which rules you choose. So it can't be like that. On the contrary, the Bible says plainly, salvation cannot be obtained by good works, but only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And even our common sense, when you just look at these from a common sense point of view, even that would tell you that the Beatitudes could never have been intended as a recipe for getting into heaven. Because we know self-evidently, not everyone who is gentle gets into heaven. Not everyone who mourns will be in the kingdom. I mean, these cannot be criteria for how you get into heaven because they're ridiculous if that's what they were intended to be. So what is he trying to say here? If it's not a recipe for how, if it's a description of who, what are we saying? What we're saying is this is a character sketch. This is a character sketch of who you're going to meet when you're in the kingdom, of who is in the kingdom at all. And that person, he or she, looks a whole lot different from your typical Pharisee. The ones you're going to find in the kingdom don't look and act the way Pharisees look and act. They're not the pious, hypocritical, self-righteous, proud religious leaders that typify what you found leading in Israel in that day. Instead, Jesus says the kingdom is going to be populated by men and women who look a lot like the crowd that was around him. That is, poor in spirit, hungering to see righteousness prevail, merciful, gentle, pure in heart, and so on. So let's get to know this character that Jesus is sketching for us here so we can begin to understand it better, and I might add, so that we might compare ourselves a little to this list and take stock of maybe who we are and whether we have this same future ahead of us. Now you can divide this list into two groups because you have nine, but you have really a group of four followed by a group of five. The first four conditions are describing the person's relationship with God That is, how they are in character before God, starting in verse 3 with being poor in spirit. Now, to be poor in spirit is simply to be the opposite of spiritually proud. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge your inability to meet the lofty standard required to get into heaven. It's recognizing that you have no hope to qualify for heaven on your own merits, and as a result, you are spiritually impoverished. You're spiritually poor. And therefore, the one who understands this about themselves... By the way, this is true for every human being. I'm not talking as if there's just some who are this way. In reality, everyone is this way. We're talking about the person who knows it, 
who has recognized it in themselves. And the one who knows they are poor in that sense, spiritually poor, in debt before God, in other words, that one has come to understand that if they are to enter into the kingdom of God, they are utterly and fully dependent on God himself to grant us mercy. By his grace to grant us entry in some fashion, by some means, and not of ourselves, because we have nothing. That's what poor in spirit means. It's literally the opposite perspective that a Pharisee had. I know we don't have Pharisees today, and you can't go back in time and meet them, so you have to take my word for it. But the literature is pretty clear on who these guys were. In fact, just the Gospels alone give you a pretty good idea of who they were. They were proud in spirit. They were proud of their piety. They were proud of their reputation. I bet they were proud of their humility whenever they showed it. They were completely in denial of their own sinfulness. You know, there's a time at which Jesus says they're sinners, and they said, we are not sinners. I mean, they're shocked at the thought of it. They weren't just qualified for heaven in their mind. They expected to be welcomed into heaven with a great fanfare. I mean, with a parade, the ticker tape parade because of all they had accomplished. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. These guys had that perception. Jesus says, that's not who you're going to find in the kingdom. So how does someone become poor in spirit? Well, the Bible says that obtaining that perspective is a work itself God does in the heart of an individual as part of the salvation experience. It's summed up nicely with one verse from 2 Corinthians when Paul talks about this process of becoming poor in spirit. He says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That's another way of saying being poor in spirit. Having this repentant attitude that appreciates, in repenting from your sin, it appreciates that I have a real debt before God and I have no hope to escape from the penalty that it requires, save God's mercy. So as the Spirit convicts somebody, bringing them to repentance, replacing their spiritual pride and self-righteousness with humility, they come to understand their true sinful condition. And in that moment, they come to recognize they need Jesus and there's no other way. That's why Jesus says, blessed, meaning in the kingdom will be those who are poor in spirit. Now, even after receiving God's grace in this way, you got to continue to depend in it, rest on it. I once saw a sign on a desk one time that says, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. Have you ever met a Christian who kind of lives like that? You know what I'm saying? They understand their salvation comes by grace. They're not saying that they earned their salvation. Nevertheless, now that they've been saved, they kind of act like they deserved it in the first place. You know, like they had it coming. Like they had an inside track. And they wear that self-righteousness on their sleeve. And they look down on everyone else who can't measure up to their lofty standards of perfection. I mean, you know, there's that side of all of us. But there's some people who really wear it well, so to speak. That's just pharisaical thinking. In a new form, right? That's spiritual pride. Now, that person's still saved. I'm not suggesting that when you slip into that state of mind, your salvation goes away. That's not the point. What I'm saying is, if you come to think that way, you're taking the grace of God for granted. You're forgetting how you entered into the kingdom in the first place. That is, how you have opportunity to enter. And I think what's dangerous about that is you become a stumbling block for others. In the same way that the Pharisees did. Because in your self-righteousness and in your portrayal, of being so good, of so of making yourself appear to be so pious, so worthy of heaven, you make everyone else lose hope at the prospect of it because they look at themselves and they say, if I can't measure up to Steve, well, I guess I don't have much hope then. It's self-defeating and it's a dangerous perspective. Not only does it impede our, only, our own walk, but it impedes others. 
Don't become so proud of your salvation that you become a stumbling block that prevents others from sharing in it. Next, I know there's eight more, but don't worry, we're not going to take the same amount of time. Next, Jesus connects being poor in spirit with mourning. Verse 4. Now, by the context, we know that mourning here refers to feeling sorrow for the devastating effects of sin. I say that because he's moving in a progression here. So you start being poor in spirit. That is, you recognize your dependence on God. You recognize your failings before God. And then, what is the natural result? For those who appreciate God's perspective on these things, those who are destined for the kingdom, you will feel true sorrow for having offended God by your sin. Not just in the moment of salvation, but on an ongoing way. Not in a debilitating way, but in the sense of a healthy repudiation of that side of you that you know is not what God wants. And that's a normal experience for Christians, isn't it? I mean, a healthy Christian should mourn over his or her mistakes, especially when you know how it hurts somebody else. I mean, that should be our natural consequence. It's the consequence of having a soft heart, of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And in many cases, it results in real literal sorrow, you know, tears, as it should. Here again, Jesus is just flipping the tables on the Pharisees because they don't mourn sin, and the world generally doesn't mourn sin. Have you noticed that? They generally celebrate sin. They cheer it on. And they shed tears when their sin brings them some kind of natural consequence. But apart from that, they don't mourn in the way Jesus is talking about. If you want a good example of how godly people mourn, you ought to read Psalm 51. That's David's own mourning. I'll just read a few verses from it to give you a sense of it. Verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my sins, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. And he goes forward from there. Can't you hear his mourning? And yet, at the same time, David appreciated that in a time to come, when he received his glorified body in the kingdom, he knew he would be comforted, that he would mourn no longer over sin because he would no longer have sin. And that's what Jesus promises to the believer. He says, blessed is the one who mourns in this sense, because in the day to come, that one, when they enter the kingdom, will mourn no more. They will be comforted in that mourning. Moving to verse 5, the pattern continues. Jesus says, gentleness will mark the citizens of the kingdom. And because of their gentleness, they will inherit the earth. And you've probably heard this same verse translated, the meek will inherit the earth. And I think that's actually a better word choice here because Jesus is talking here about something very specific. He's talking about an attitude of submission to God's authority. So in that sense, being gentle or being meek means accepting your station in life as God has assigned it and therefore seeking to please him from that place. It's the opposite of earthly ambition. It's the opposite of seeking for power and the riches of the world. It's the opposite of seeking to make a name for yourself here, as opposed to making a name for yourself in heaven. And Jesus says the kingdom citizen is the one who exhibits this attitude, and to the extent that that person lives according to this conviction, they have a reward in heaven waiting for them. And that reward, Jesus says, takes the form of a share of Christ's inheritance. The Bible says that at his resurrection, Christ received back the earth and all that it contains as his own inheritance. And one day, when he comes to rule over that inheritance, as he will, 
He will share that inheritance with the children of God, with you and me, all who have believed in him. We will each have some portion of it to rule over with him. And the meekness that is there, our desire to please Christ with our service now, not to seek for the world's rewards, that is the measure by which he will assign that inheritance. That's what we mean when we say the meek inherit the earth. We're not saying if you give all your possessions away and you live in some hut somewhere, that that in and of itself is what rewards you. No, we're saying submit to the authority of God in your life and live as he calls you to live now, foregoing whatever the world would offer you instead, and wait till you see how he can reward you for that obedience. Next in verse 6, Jesus says, The kingdom will hunger and thirst for righteousness. By the way, I should add that that whole attitude of meekness and inheriting that is counter-opposed to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about riches now and power now. Verse 6, he says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who are blessed in the kingdom. Now, when you hunger or when you thirst in any context, it means you don't have what you want, right? I mean, when you're hungry, it means you want food, but you're not having it. At least not yet. And the same for thirst. So, That's the same sense that he means here. Those destined for the kingdom are those who will long to see righteousness reign on earth, and yet, at the same time, we realize that is an unreachable goal until Jesus returns. So you hunger, you thirst to see righteousness, but you're not not deceived into thinking that you can achieve it through social justice or at the voting booth or in some other way, that you're somehow going to make the kingdom happen now in your own power and through the institutions of men. That's not appreciating what Jesus is saying. That's not hungering and thirsting. That's satisfying your hunger and thirst in the wrong way. For now, you need to understand God's righteousness reigns in your heart by the Holy Spirit. But we await the day that it reigns from sea to sea on earth. And it will come, and it's promised to come. You want to read about that? Go read chapter 4 of the Old Testament prophet Micah as an example. He teaches in just a couple of verses. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And it goes on from there. Now that day's coming. That's one of the things I long for the most personally. And it's kind of the hardest thing I can imagine. I can't yet get my head wrapped around a world filled with people, everything done right. I just, I'm not there yet. I'm wondering what it's going to be like. That's what we're promised. You hunger for that? You ever wanted to see right, only right done and wrong always put aside? You're, it's coming. It's coming. But that's not what the leaders of Israel wanted. That's not what a Pharisee wanted. You know what they thought? They thought they'd already found that. In their own law. The Mishnah gave them that, right? They were satisfied in that system. They didn't hunger for something better. And they loved it especially because it rewarded them. And it protected them. And it gave them power. Such men will not be found in the kingdom. Now the second set of the five Beatitudes relate to our relationship with people. And these we move through with some haste. Because there's a very similar pattern. All we really need to do in understanding them is appreciate the meaning of each unique word or concept as Jesus moves. So beginning in verse 7 with merciful. Those who are going into the kingdom will show mercy. Why? Because believers are uniquely able to appreciate mercy. Wouldn't you agree? Right? You received it from God as a part of how he saved you by grace. And so in your new nature given to you by Christ, 
you are uniquely prepared to appreciate that mercy is a good thing and that you, having had nothing of your own to deserve what you received, you are in a good position to bless somebody else with the same. That trait is very unlike what the unsaved typically think and do. I'm not saying everyone's the same. Obviously, it's a stereotype. It's a broad brush. But in general, those who have not known the mercy of God in that sense are not inclined to give it away too easily to others. And especially true among the religious in Israel. And you see this very clearly when you're in Israel today. Among those who are in the, in the land today, among Jews in general, and I'm not being any Semitic whatsoever, I'm talking about a culture that they have built on this pharisaical style of teaching that they've had for centuries. It's led to a very eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth kind of look at life. And as a result, they're very unwilling to extend mercy. They believe everyone needs to earn what they receive and to take what they want, and they don't have this sense that's strongly focused on mercy. Similarly, verse 8, Jesus said the kingdom citizen will possess a pure heart. And he's talking here about being upright, honest, conducting yourself in every area of life in an upright way in your dealings with others. Because a kingdom citizen is not someone who profits from someone else's loss. That's not a mentality that you would find among believers generally. It's not a recipe for gaining heaven. I'm not saying that if you are nice to people, that's how you're going to get into heaven. I'm saying that those who have gained heaven will reflect these things in their life because Christ lives in them. And when you get into the kingdom, if you're the kind of person who practices in a pure heart now, these these ways of life, these upright ways of life, wait till you see what it's like to live face-to-face with God and what uprightness looks like there. You will fully be satisfied in your purity there. Verse 9, the kingdom will be occupied by those who make peace because God's children exhibit that desire naturally to reduce strife, to encourage peace. And, and I say this not without exception. I know that. We sometimes aren't very peaceful in our dealings. But in general, those who've been touched by God and indwelled by the Spirit appreciate love and peace at a level they've never known before. And you may not always find what you want in that regard, but you're programmed to seek for it and desire it in a way you never were before. Jesus says kingdom citizens live this way because one day we know we'll be called sons of God. Here's what Jesus is talking about. He's alluding to your role in the kingdom. The Bible says that when you and I enter into the kingdom, we have a job. And part of our job is ruling with Christ in the government over that time and establishing peace in the world with Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Well, how much more than matters of this life? He's alluding to this future role that you and I will have in the kingdom. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are the peacemakers, because when they get to the kingdom of God, they're going to have their job making peace. And then finally, kingdom citizens... Jesus says, we'll know persecution and slander because of our relationship with Christ. Yet, he says, despite that, you're going to rejoice in those things when it comes. And it's in the rejoicing of persecution that we make our mark as a believer. Just as the prophets who came before us, Jesus said, if we share in their persecution because they share in their same knowledge of God that we have, then we can also know we're going to share in their future. And what was their future? Reward in the kingdom, Jesus says. So let's take a step back for a second. I want you to consider the character sketch we just walked through. This kingdom citizen character sketch. You have a person, Jesus says, the one entering the kingdom, 
who is humble. They're aware of their own unrighteousness. They rest in God's mercy and grace. They're saddened by their own mistakes. They long to see righteousness prevailing. They submit to God's authority. They want to please Him. They're not so concerned with the world's rewards. They want to show mercy to others. They want to deal honestly with others. They want to seek for peace with others. And yet they know that they're going to be persecuted despite wanting for the right things in this world. That, Jesus said, that's the kind of person you're going to find in the kingdom. Now, if you're a believer in this room, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I don't do some of those things very well. What does that tell you? Well, first it tells you that this list is a set of ideal standards. It's the new gold standard that replaces the false one offered by the Pharisees. If you want to set up a a model for yourself, if you want the gold standard that reflects what God's people should look like, here you have it. This is it. And so as an ideal, it's not something that any of us will meet with perfection on any given day. And I think that's an acknowledged understanding here. We're not saying you have to do these things, and if you fail on any one of them, suddenly you're not really a, a saved person or any such thing. That's not what he's saying. But on the other hand, By the Spirit living in you, you ought to be moving in this direction. I mean, you ought to be getting closer. Some of these things should be true about you. Certainly some of them need to be if you've been saved, like being poor in spirit. And so, if your behavior, believer, does not measure up in one or more of these areas, then what that tells you is that despite the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you're still living in the flesh, at least to some degree. You may have been saved by your faith. Your future in the kingdom is secure. I'm not saying it isn't. But you still have some work to do in sanctification, in representing Christ to this world. Do not be self-satisfied when you look at this list and say, well, I got 7 out of 10, that's 70%, that's passing. Or whatever you might come to. Now, on the other hand, for those of you who maybe aren't sure that your future includes the kingdom, I mean, you may be thinking to yourself, I want to go to the kingdom. I like the idea of heaven. I guess I need to start doing some of these things. No, no, no. If that's what you thought, you just got the whole thing backward. Because as I said, this is not a recipe for heaven. You cannot mimic these behaviors and expect that to result in your salvation. That's not how it works. That's like trying to push on a rope. You're doing it wrong. Okay? It doesn't happen that way. Before you can act like a kingdom citizen, you need to be a kingdom citizen. And the only way you can be a child of God on the road to heaven, is if you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, knowing He died on the cross to save you from your sin, paying the price that you can't pay. As you accept that truth, as you accept Christ as Lord, the Bible says you're born again by the Spirit. Scripture says that that old spirit, the old nature you had from birth that wanted to sin and hated God, that has been put to death on the cross with Christ, and in its place you have received something new and permanent. And that new nature God gives you by faith is formed in the image of Jesus so that now you may share in his nature and in his character. And in the sharing of Jesus' nature, you begin to exhibit these characteristics because these are the characteristics of Jesus. And that new nature will do things that you could never do. It makes you spiritually humble. It causes you to mourn over your sin. It causes you to submit to Christ in gentleness and so on and so on. So you confess Christ so that God will bring you these qualities in time. And then, of course, in time, you enter the kingdom. You have eternal life, the promise that you will never die. And in that way, you are truly 
blessed. That is what the point of this is. Are you this person or not? Not can you mimic these things or not? You will not gain these things by mimicking the piety of the hypocritical, self-righteous religious leaders. Not of that day, nor of this day, by the way. Don't mimic priests, don't mimic popes, don't mimic imams or yogis or gurus or anyone else you think has something to offer. Their hearts betray their ignorance. God's children display God in their heart. That's what Jesus is calling us all to do. Know him so that we can be like him. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the work you have done by your spirit in my heart in all the hearts of those who know you in this room and all who hear me. What a glorious miracle it is, Father, that you can take the likes of us and give us hope for something we have no right to receive. And more than that, Father, to make us like you, even now as we struggle against the sin of our flesh, even in the small things of life, as we see ourselves changing and becoming more like you, we thank you, Father, for the blessing, the blessing of not just knowing you, but of being like you. For those of us, Father, who still feel the the tug of sin and have fallen short, as we will do from time to time, Father, we thank you for your forgiveness, and we ask for your strength to do better. And for any of those, Father, who have heard this message without knowing you and have wondered, how do I enter the kingdom, and they now hear the gospel is the way, I pray, Father, you would give them the courage, the humility, the willingness to confess Christ. Let them do that within the ear of another so that we may recognize their faith and encourage them in it. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.